infotrackzone.com. This is InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know. Here's what's happening on this week's show. It drives millions of us crazy on a daily basis and costs us a fortune. It's driving in traffic. But what makes us drive the way we do? We'll tell you the facts. We all just sort of go at the same time towards something, and then we tend to, you know, act in a way that's not cooperative. We see other people's gains as losses for us. Then, prescription drug costs are soaring. We'll talk to an expert for facts on how you can save on your family's prescription bill. Advertising is very effective. Patients are going in to ask for the drug. This is, of course, not appropriate. Those two stories and much more are coming your way on this edition of InfoTrack. Stay with us. The program gets underway right after this. InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know. Here's your host, Chris Whitting. The next time you're sitting in traffic, think about this. Why don't ants get into traffic jams? The answer lies in psychology. And InfoTrack's Roy Mackey is here with a look. Thanks, Chris. Our guest is Tom Vanderbilt. He's become an expert on the psychology of traffic, and he's the author of a book called Traffic, Why We Drive the Way We Do. Tom, welcome to InfoTrack. Thank you. Good to be here. So why don't ants get into traffic jams? You know, ants are the perfect cooperative species. They evolve to work for the benefit of the colony and not for themselves. And these army ants that they've tracked in Panama, and people study this, the trails they make, it's traffic. They look like highways from above. They flow just in an ultra-efficient way with no sort of road rage, if you will, bad merging, overtaking. It's just a perfect system. So we do have something to learn from ants, I would argue. Human traffic, it's a non-cooperative network. We all wake up and we don't decide that, you know, oh, you know, I'm not going to get on the road today because I don't want to make your commute more crowded. And we all just sort of go at the same time towards something. And then we tend to, you know, act in a way that's not cooperative. We see other people's gains as losses for us in, you know, all sorts of merging situations. And in general, I think we just act a little bit less human on the road. So it's not only a matter of acting more like ants, it's acting more like humans that would be a start. And there certainly is a psychological change when you take someone and put them inside that glass and steel compartment. Yeah, I kind of found that it was similar to Internet behavior in kind of these chat rooms, or especially on things like blogs, political blogs, where people just say really sort of nasty comments that I would bet they wouldn't say to someone face-to-face. It would be a more civil conversation. But the chat room, you jump on, you have an anonymous pseudonym. No one really knows who you are. You can leave anytime you want. There's no responsibility. And I just found that kind of an interesting comparison to traffic where all those same conditions sort of apply. Many of your findings fly in the face of conventional wisdom. Here's one. Building more roads only increases volume and congestion. Yeah, and this is something that's a bit unique to traffic. I mean, an engineer suggested to me, you know, when people increase the sewer capacity in, say, a suburban development, it doesn't really compel people to go to the bathroom more. To use one example, you know, (laughs) you could definitely improve traffic conditions for a while when you build a new highway, but it might be the spur prompting people to make trips they might not have made at that time, made in a different way. Always playing a game of catch-up and trying to build our way out of congestion, which is something I think we're trying to do less of now because we're simply running out of money. Here's an interesting theory. You write that dangerous roads are safer. And this is something that really surprised me, but 
something like the roundabout, which we're now seeing in America more frequently, people really, on first instinct, hate roundabouts. They think that you have to go in and sort of move around and figure out where you're going and interact with other cars, and it seems stressful to them. But arguably that makes things safer in a way because you're really having to think on your own rather than relying on signs and lights that some drivers may not have even seen. So roundabouts are safe for a number of reasons, but I think it feels more dangerous to us and we might put our guard up. On the other hand, things that seem really safe to us, nice country roads on clear, sunny, dry days, might be the place that turns out to be the most dangerous of all and we just don't even know it. Here's another of your ideas that may put a chill down the spine of parents. Send your new teenage driver to a high-performance driving school. This is one of these things that the opinion's a little bit divided on. I mean, I went to one of these schools and found there were a lot of things I really didn't know about operating a car. How to use the anti-lock brakes in the proper manner, how long it really took to come to a stop in a certain situation, what the best way to avoid a looming crash might be. But there's another school that argues that teens who go through this become more confident. They think they have more skills, so they put those skills to the test on the road. And the jury's kind of out on this. In some ways, it's all about how you present the information. But really, what people are taught and how they act on the road doesn't always equal out. Let's talk for a moment about synchronizing traffic lights, because I think almost everyone has at one time or another thought, why don't they just synchronize these lights so everybody can just sail right through? That is tougher than it seems, isn't it? There's always a battle between people wanting to go one way and wanting to go another, and sometimes that demand is almost equal, and the green wave, as it's been called, and it's a great idea in theory, and it's definitely better for traffic flow and gas efficiency, but sometimes it just runs up into the realities of intersections. There are two people wanting to go in two directions at the same time. You're listening to InfoTrack, and our guest is Tom Vanderbilt. He's an expert on the psychology of traffic, and he's the author of a book called Traffic, Why We Drive the Way We Do. All right, Tom, I've been waiting to throw this one out there. You say in the course of researching your book that you have become a late merger, which to some fellow drivers is just short of being an axe murderer. (laughs) Explain that one. And I used to be one of those people who thought that way, and then one day I was waiting in a queue, Two lanes were merging into one at a construction site. If the signs had merged right one mile, I got tired of waiting in this line because I kept watching people go past me, and I thought, well, I should maybe I could save a little bit of time, and I felt so bad about it that I looked into this big field of traffic engineering a little bit further and found that in certain experiments they had done where if people just were told to go all the way to the point where the lane is physically ending and then kind of did a one-on-one zipper merge, as it's been called, the throughput of the system, which just means more cars getting through, would actually be higher, which just sort of blew my mind and went against everything I thought was right on the road. And, you know, like a lot of drivers, I thought I was a traffic expert because I had this little diploma called a driver's license, and I just found out I was wrong. Well, if that's the case, shouldn't the highway authorities stop putting those signs a mile or two miles out in advance telling people to get over? Yeah, I mean, it's a challenge because to set up these sort of dynamic late merge systems as they've been called, you know, you do need more signage, you might need temporary flashing signs. And in Minnesota, they found that when they even set up this new system, that drivers were still clinging to their old habits and they refused to go all the way to the merge point. And there was still some of the same tension between people trying to jump back in, people blocking both lanes to prevent someone from going by there. And it might have just been very polite Minnesota behavior, I'm not sure, but the system didn't work the way the engineers had hoped. Your book also has some interesting stats on honking the horn, who does it and when and that sort of thing. Tell us a little bit about that. 
this is a great way for psychologists to kind of analyze aggression. And the theory is that when you stop a car at a traffic light and then it turns green, you keep that car there for a minute and then you look at who is behind you and how quickly they honk, how long they honk, how many times they honk. And there are patterns that emerge, things like men honk more at women, women also honk more at women than men. If your car has a kind of a novice sticker or indicates that you're a learner driver, you'll get honked at quicker. People in convertibles honk less than people with the tops up. Even the license plate, if it's the same country or state you're from, there's less chance of honking. So a lot of things are going on out there that kind of reveal little patterns that we might not even be aware of. And one of the more interesting things I read in your book is the influence that having a man in your car with you versus a woman in your car can influence your driving. Tell us about that. Well, a passenger in general is a great safety device is one way to look at it. And I think as drivers, we do dread the sort of backseat driver offering too much advice. But it's been shown that people who have passengers in their cars are involved in fewer crashes when it's been studied on certain highways. And arguably, it's another set of eyes, but it's also... You might feel a certain responsibility toward the people you're carrying, and especially if that's a woman that's been seen with a man as the driver, there's almost a protective effect going on there. And the only exception is teen drivers who actually become more dangerous the more passengers are riding along with them. So that's why we've seen with graduated licensing, there's limits on how many passengers and when they can be taken out in a car. And Tom, if you were made king for a week, what would be the one of the first one or two things that you would do to improve traffic safety on our nation's roads? I think just to return to some simple civility would be great. I mean, this isn't rocket science. If people could just signal, it gives other drivers a clue of what you're doing. I often get tense because a car slows and I'm not sure if they're going to turn, or it just raises my stress level higher than it really needs to be in that situation. And in a crowded traffic environment, you're having these encounters all sorts of times, so simple common human decency, if you will, the kinds of things we generally tend to do off the road, but seem to leave behind the minute we get behind the wheel. Tom Vanderbilt, the author of a book called Traffic, Why We Drive the Way We Do. Tom, do you have a website? I do. It's howwedrive.com, and I'm keeping up with some research and invite reader uh, comments and driving pet peeves. <laughs> All right, Tom, thanks for joining us on InfoTrack. Thank you. For InfoTrack, I'm Roy Mackey. Next, are drugstore costs making you feel sick? The cure for high prescription costs, coming up. You're listening to InfoTrack. More after this. 